God speaks to us in his word in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then in verse 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everybody, uh, thanks for coming to church today. We, are, we still got a lot of people that are out traveling for Thanksgiving, and so, man, if you're in from out of town, family, um, visiting family in from out of town, really are grateful that you would be with us today. It's good to see some of you guys again. All right, we're in Genesis chapter uh, 3, really. We're going to kind of bounce around the Bible a little bit today, but Genesis chapter 3 is, is primarily where we're going to land. We are in the season of Advent, like we mentioned already, and let me explain real quick what that means. Advent is that moment in the church calendar that includes but leads up to the incarnation. If you're not familiar with that word, incarnation means um, becoming flesh. That's what the word actually means. But the incarnation of uh, the, the Christian holiday is Jesus becoming flesh, God becoming flesh um, in Jesus. And so Advent is that period of four weeks that lead up to and then finally culminate in the celebration of the incarnation. And there are four themes traditionally to Advent. There's hope, there's peace, there's joy, and then finally, love. Each week leading up to Christmas, we're going to cover one of those themes, and we're going to look at the whole of Scripture and how literally all of Scripture points to the incarnation or points to that thing that we are supposed to celebrate on Christmas, which is God becoming flesh. Today, we're going to kick off this series over the next four weeks, we're going to kick it off by looking at the story of what the Bible calls the fall and what Christian tradition has called the fall of man, which is the story that we just read. Eve and Adam eating the apple, eating of the tree that God told them, don't eat of that tree. So let me real quick, 
walk you through how we got to this place to start. We have creation. God, who was not created, nobody made God, which, by the way, will bring up a point that we'll continue to cover really throughout the rest of our lives as Christians, but especially today, and that is this point. You are not God. You cannot know what he knows. You cannot be like he is. You cannot understand the things that he understands. And if you're a Christian in the room, one day you will die and you will spend eternity with God. Nothing can change that. One day you'll die, you'll spend eternity with God. But I kind of grew up thinking like, man, I want to go to heaven because I want to all of a sudden know all the things that God knows or be able to do the stuff that God can do. There will never be a moment throughout eternity where you will ever know the things that God knows or understand the way that he is or be able to work like God because you know why? You will never, even in eternity, you will never be God. God will always be God and you will always be eternally a human saved by his grace. God was never made. Nobody created God. So we have to stop right now and put to bed our human logic because we cannot comprehend him. His ways are higher. He was never made. However, he did create. As a matter of fact, he created everything. How did he create everything? Out of nothing. Well, how can he possibly do that? You know why? Because he's God. That's how he did it. I can't even create something out of a lot of things. <laughs> Give me all the YouTube videos in the world about some things and I can't create whatever they coach me how to create. God created everything out of nothing. Animals, um, trees, plants, ecosystems. God created all of that, the complexity of it all. He created it, waters. He created the seas. He confronts Job at one point, this character in the Bible that was challenging God. He said, where were you when I told the oceans where to stop and where to start? God created that. He spoke, he opened his mouth and spoke light. Now just think about the concept of light. Try and put your hands around light. Try and make light tangible. Somebody please conceptualize darkness and light for me. Just quantify it so we can understand it and put it in a neat box. You can't. God spoke it. He opened his mouth and darkness became light. That's crazy to think about. The world was a void and without form and God opened his mouth and said, let there be light. He is other. He's outside of us in some, I mean, he just, which makes the incarnation all the more crazy that the one outside of us would become us. And his last thing that he created was the pinnacle of his creation. It was so specific. It, it was so well formed. It, was, it wasn't just speaking. God himself knelt down. He created man from the dirt, and it's the only thing, the thing that he made in his image. His prized creation, he said, I created man, male and female, he created them in his image, and he said, it's 
very good. Which is a whole other sermon topic. Everybody has value and worth. Every single person who has ever been made was formed in the image of Almighty God. Everybody has worth. Everybody. Skin color, ethnic background, culture, doesn't matter. Everybody has the exact same dignity, value, and worth. Everybody has the exact same imago Dei. That's the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In his image, he said, it's good. It's good. He set them in a place called the Garden of Eden. Eden was a magnificent place. He put every tree in there. He put man in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He created man in his image, and in his image would have been another creator, man to work and keep, to maintain. That's in the image of God, to work and keep something. This place was utopia. It was everything we ever needed. We worked, and because we worked, the ground yielded fruit. (laughs) Because we worked, everything worked just great. It was all perfect. We had perfect unity with nature. Perfect unity with trees, and (laughs) I'm not trying to get all mystical on you, but animals and Everything worked together, this perfect ecosystem. It was a perfect utopia. And the best part about it, and what actually makes it utopia, is not the trees and the animals and the landscape and the scenery. It's not what it tasted like or whatever. What made it utopia was the communion, the perfect relationship and communion that man had with God. God creates man his image, puts him in Eden to work it and keep it, and has perfect, unparalleled communion with man. In the garden, there were two trees. There were more than two trees. There were lots of trees. As a matter of fact, um, it says here in Genesis 2, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Sounds pretty cool. But then the two trees, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One, the tree of life, leads to eternal life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is another thing. So I want you to imagine this scenario. He says, every tree that was, every tree that was pleasant to the sight. I have some friends here that have cut down a lot of trees and know a lot about trees. And they probably haven't even scratched the surface of every tree. And to put every single tree in the garden that looked, that was good to look at, and also yielded fruit to eat. And then two trees of note, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Imagine that. Everything. Perfect communion. There's creation. There's man and woman. It's the garden, everything that you need. There's two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then only one command, just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? It says this. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day 
that you eat of it, you will surely die. Death was not in the world. They had the tree of life. God made them eternal beings in his image. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, don't eat of it, because then you will die. Pretty simple. Imagine this, you've got every tree, you've got everything that you ever needed, it all tastes good, it's satisfying, it's harmony, it's, we're good to go, man. Just, if you just, by the way, there's this one thing over here, just don't, you can have the millions of other things, everything, enjoy it, eat as much as you want, but this one thing, not only are you not supposed to eat that because of whatever reason, but all of this will go away, you will stop being alive and you'll ruin everything if you just eat this one thing. Dude, I, let me let you in on my childhood. I, uh, somebody told me not to do something, I pretty much, it was real hard for me to, to not do it. Hey man, if you touch this hot stove, it's gonna burn you. I'm like, I don't approve it. Dad. What do you know about hot stoves? If you do this thing, here, there are gonna be consequences. I'm like, well, I don't, how do I know unless I actually do it? This is my train of thought. Where does that come from? You ever wonder where that thing comes from? I mean, there are rule followers in life, but by and large, like there, then there are people who are just not rule followers, struggle with rules. Where does it come from? Where does that Rebellion, that thing in us, where? God said, have everything except this one thing. You will die if you eat it. Well, what happened was this. It's what Christians, is what the Bible calls the fall. Why is it called the fall? Well, it's because of this. In that moment, a serpent comes up to a deceiver. The Bible calls the accuser comes up to Eve and Adam and tells them something, introduces something into the world that was brand spanking new and it changed everything. The serpent, the accuser, the deceiver introduced the lie. The Bible calls it the lie, not a lie. And here's the lie. God is telling you a lie, you cannot trust God, you should be God. You should be him. You're smart enough. He's just trying to keep you from his power because he's so insecure and doesn't want you to know he's the great deceiver God is. He's, you should be skeptical of him. You should be God. You should know what he knows. You should understand what he understands. And as a matter of fact, it, all you have to do is do the thing that he told you not to do, and then you, yourself, will be all-powerful and all-knowing, able to control your life. The Bible calls it the lie, because it sure does make sense. Don't touch the stove, Ben, it's hot. I, I think you're, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me just try it.
Let me figure it out for myself. The skepticism that we feel for human institutions and authority on any level, all of that came from this, the fall. It's the lie that perpetuates the curse. Adam and Eve bought it. We do too. And when they bought it, all hell literally broke loose. And it severed the fabric of God's created order. So we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at where do we go? What happens now? And we're going to talk about the reality of the curse, the broken world that we live in. The first thing is this. Because of the fall, the whole world is broken. I'm not going to read all of it, but just a little bit, just to let you know what is actually said. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And she goes on to say, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The next line is interesting. When the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband. There's some implication here that she had seen the tree, she knew about the tree, she knew she wasn't supposed to touch the tree, but it wasn't until the lie entered her mind when the enemy convinced her that the tree was not what God said that she's like, all of a sudden, it's desirable. Looks like I might want that. This broke everything down. And I wanna kinda go there with you because I need you to think about this in a practical way. I want to take a little bit of inventory. When we say the fall broke everything, when we say the curse, uh, the world is cursed, let's just try to go there practically. Take inventory, please. How are we doing out there? How are we doing with the planet? How's planet Earth doing these days? Everything smooth sailing? Ecosystems are perfectly balanced and in line. We really take care of the planet. Nothing to worry about. How about nature? How are we doing nature? It's so easy to plant and yield, isn't it? People pay for it right away and farmers, man, have a great life and it's just easy. Like the ground's not hard. You don't have to do much to it to doctor it to make it yield plants. Right? Anybody who's ever tried to grow anything, like, dude, you have lost your mind. Or how about this, man? Maybe you said our scorecard's pretty good with the planet, with nature. How about with each other? How are we doing? How about love one another? We doing okay with that? The whole world. Now, just think about the state of the world. How's humanity doing with love one another? Anybody give us an A? How about an A minus? How about a B? Would anybody score us a C minus right now? 
D minus. I'd be shocked if we got a D minus. Look at the state of the world. Doesn't it feel broken to you? Do you ever just like think like, man, I can't, I was listening to a podcast this past week and the one thing, and it was like so simple, but these people are not Christians. The one thing they said, it was like, man, everything's just off right now. It's just off. People are acting weird. People are scared of each other. It just feels weird. You can't even explain why. Since Genesis 3, the world has been off. We are not in some unique time period. We just feel it uniquely right now. It's off. It does not line up. Nothing is ever quite as fulfilling as you want it to be, even if you have an idealistic view of your life, family, marriage, kids, money, career. None of those things, do you ever wonder why? None of those things are quite as fulfilling as you thought. There's always bumps in the road. You could have the best marriage of all time. It still does not give you exactly what you need. How about this one? Vacation. Let's just choose like the path of least resistance. How many vacations have you gone on in your life and you thought, that, didn't, that, was, that did not match what I thought it was going to be? <laughs> That beach was not as cool as the pictures. That cruise was like, man, it was wavy, and I imagine like the best lobster and filet mignon of all time every night, and they, neither one were very good. I've never been on a cruise. I'm just inviting you into my idealistic vacation. Nothing's ever quite like you want it to be. The best for me is this, is the best analogy I grew up in a small town in the South, and um, I have these ideas about how I grew up. I left when I was 18, and really haven't been back much, but I had a house um, on the corner in a neighborhood. I had a big yard every day, every single day. My yard was the yard that every kid from the neighborhood came over and played baseball. We did it every day. You could throw a baseball from my house to the high school football stadium, literally. I mean, it, it was right across the street. So I, my grandma was the school secretary. My grandpa was the town hero. I'm not kidding. World War II, decorated, Purple Heart, um, has crazy stories. His name was John Wesley Smith. I mean, he just was like a legend. So my hometown is like this small little place that I remember being so idealistic. And maybe you have the same thoughts too, but here's the problem is every time I would go home, the house wasn't nearly as big as I remember. The yard wasn't as cool. It didn't seem like anybody really wanted to play baseball after I became an adult. The, the school was smaller. It was more run down. The town was like, I started to learn things like my hometown has a really bad methamphetamine problem. You don't imagine it that way. You ever experienced that? You go back home, or maybe some of you are experiencing that this week because you spent the holidays with your family. And you have a memory of how awesome holidays are with your family, and then you get in the same room together when you're an adult, and you're like, man, I did not realize you were that annoying. 
I forgot that you smelled that way, or whatever. Nothing's ever quite like we think it should be. The world's broken, you're broken, our dreams, our idealism, it's broken. It all comes back to this moment in Genesis 3. We have been chasing our tail ever since that moment. You can be like God is the lie. Adam and Eve bought it, and we're in a constant state of trying to make God in our own image. We're never quite satisfied with what he gives us, and we're always trying to replace the stuff that he gives us. We're trying to replace his presence with his stuff, and what we need more than anything, what is what we look forward to, our hope in life and death, is communion of the presence of God. What made the garden utopia was God's presence. It's broken in the fall. It broke our perfect union with God. It's severed. And ever since then, we've been trying to get back to this sanctuary of satisfaction in in Eden. Genesis 3.23 gives us the story in detail. Therefore, God sent him, uh, Adam and Eve, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Earlier, God cursed the ground, and he said, the ground will not yield. You'll have to work for it. You'll have to sweat for it. And he also, with childbirth to the woman, he said, now in pain you will give birth. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life was eternal life for man and woman. And now, because of their sin, death enters the world and eternal life is broken. Talking about the fall, talking about the world, the way I see it is there are two ways to look at it. We fall on, in one of these two ways, two ditches. There's blind optimism. Blind optimism is a good one. Um, The way I like to describe it is in a picture. This is called a meme. I'm very proud of myself for finding it. Thank you very much. There's a little dog sitting on a stool with a cup of coffee. The whole house is burning around. He's just right as rain looking straight ahead saying, this is fine. It's fine. It ain't fine, bro. Blind blind optimism avoids reality. It avoids conflict and avoids reality. And it's just like, I don't want to hear anything bad. I don't want to see anything bad. I'm not going to. I'm not going to pay attention to how crazy the world is anymore. I just, I'm going to live in this state <laughs> where I'm looking ahead and nothing around me. The house is burning down. Nobody tell me, please. Blind optimism. Or it's the person that never acknowledges just the weight of it all. There's no conversations about sin and death and don't want to talk about it. I have people in my life like that. There's no talk about like whether or not you should live a certain way or what the Bible emphatically says about sin. There's no talk about it. It's just blind optimism. It's statements like, hey, I think isn't God just supposed to be about love for everyone no matter what and shouldn't it all just come back to that? And It's like, yes, that's true. Define love for me then. Well, yeah, it's just acceptance, and yeah, but love is not acceptance. It's different than that. 
It's that conversation. Blind optimism. Nothing's bad. Don't bring anything bad in here. Everything's going to be okay. It's all going to work out. It ain't going to work out. It's actually not working out right now. And then the other is blind pessimism. It's all pointless, so why even try? Everything sucks, everybody sucks. I'm just gonna complain and be skeptical of everybody and everything and every institution and every authority. I'm gonna be skeptical of them, that's my, that's my happy place. <laughs> I'm going to assume the worst. Everybody's out to get me. All government, all authority, all everything, the church, you name it. It has to be that their end goal is to trip me up and get something from me. Just blind pessimism. Don't trust anybody. All is lost. Both of these viewpoints escape reality. And they don't deal with it. Both are coping mechanisms for a world that's totally broken. We try to escape reality through either blind optimism or pessimism, conflict avoidance, perpetuating adolescence, not ever trusting anyone or any institution. Both lead to the obvious coping mechanisms, which include numbing ourselves out of reality. Things like drug abuse, alcohol abuse, sex, money. I mean, even fame now. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? You can make a ton of money and be crazy famous for perpetuating an idealistic life on social media. And at the same time, everybody that looks at the social media, which in turn perpetuates this, would say, I know that's not real, social media is fake, nothing's ever that good, but all the while perpetuating it. And I'm not like getting on you for looking at social media, I'm just saying, that is what we live in, that's actually not new, it's just a different platform. We numb ourselves out. So what are we going to do? The fall has broken everything. It, is, it does not look good. What are we going to do? Put hope in your job. Or maybe you're going to be the one person to be totally fulfilled by your marriage. We got to get hope from something else. And the hope is this for Christians. Things are bleak. The world is broken. But we actually have more hope than we deserve. Your hope is in Jesus. And I'm not just saying that because it's my job. It's real. First Thessalonians tells us this. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep or those who are dead, 
that you may not grieve as others, who, as others do who have no hope. We grieve. We recognize the state of the world. Especially when someone dies, we grieve. But the whole world seems like it's dying, we grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. How do we have hope? It's this, because of Jesus, man. Because of Jesus, we have real hope. Romans 5 tells it to us this way. There was an Adam. He sinned. Sin entered the world. The whole world is broken because of one man's sin. But just like because of one man's sin, sin, uh, one man's sin, death entered the world, because of one man's faithfulness, righteousness enters the world. Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience how many, the many will be, will be made righteous. The real story of God, the real story of the curse in the fall, the real story of God and man doesn't end with Adam. It culminates and points to and leads to Jesus, who says by the Bible in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. What Adam did, God undid. Our hope is in him. Look at how John describes Jesus and look at how much it parallels Genesis. This is John describing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Genesis, Eve and Adam eat of the tree. Sin enters the world along with it, death. The world is broken. It's off the path. Jesus comes. The Bible describes him as the new and actually the better Adam. He's the new Adam. He does what Adam and Eve could not do. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He's offered everything that Adam was offered in the lie. You can have it all. You can know it all. And Jesus said no to the enemy, which is what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He comes out perfect. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent in sin and death. There's an icon. It's one of my favorite. I love this. On the left, you have Eve. She's shamed. She's holding an apple. 
the snake, the serpent, is wrapped around her leg. He's got a hold of her. On the right, you have Mary, the one who will give virgin birth to Jesus, comforting Eve, and she has her foot on the head of the snake. This is a story of the gospel. Where is hope for you? Where is hope for the whole world? The hope, the only hope, and it's the best hope. It's better news than we ever deserve. The hope in the world is Jesus Christ. He's the hope. Real, eternal. And here's the best part. It's not just what he's done. The work of Jesus is finished. The work of his, his work for sin, for humanity, for reconciling us to God, it is a finished work done one time. That's the only time it needed to be done. One time. It's finished. But his, he has a finishing work in when he comes to restore all things. The Bible talks about Jesus coming back again for us. And it doesn't imply that we're going to somehow be like ripped off this planet. What it actually says is that he will restore all things. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Look at how Revelation 21 describes it. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love this. It doesn't tell us that he's making all new things. It says, I'm making all things new. God will restore this place. New earth, new heaven. He will restore Eden. Perfect communion with him forever. Anxiety, sin, pain, pandemics, depression, gone when Jesus comes back. We live in an advent right now. This season is about waiting for Jesus. He has come for us. He was born of a virgin, a little baby who lived a perfect life, died and was resurrected for you. You can be saved if you put all of your trust and hope in him. But he also will come again to restore all things. It's the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We live in an advent right now. We're waiting, but we're waiting with anticipation for his return. Joy to the World is a song that we sing a lot at Christmas. You've sung it before. A guy named Isaac Watts wrote it. But he wrote it primarily about the return of Jesus, not the incarnation. It fits both, but him writing it primarily about the return of Jesus. I want to read this verse to you and let it sink into your heart. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We have hope today. We have hope. The world's crazy, it's broken, the fall is real, the curse is real, but I am telling you, I'm not just saying it to be trite, I'm not just saying it because I'm a pastor. God actually, really does love you. 
He actually really wants you. And he actually really will come to restore all things back to the garden. Trust Jesus. Trust him, man. You have nothing else to put your trust in. Trust Jesus. Put every ounce, every bit of your hope, all of it in him. You will not find better news than what I gave you today. It's the best news. Let's stand together.